Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. All right, good to be with you. I want to greet all you who are worshiping with us online, those who have gathered together. If we haven't met, I'm Chip Freed, the lead teaching pastor here, and so, so great to be together. Um, I know yesterday was Veterans Day, but I just kind of have on my heart uh, so many that serve. If we have any veterans or active service people, if you're online, put in the chat. Anybody here today that's at, would you stand up so we could just acknowledge you? <laughs> acknowledge you, folks. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Uh, I, I used to, in a, in a galaxy far, far away, in a land long, long ago, I actually played Division I college basketball. And uh, so I've coached basketball for 27 years. I actually coached varsity at the school right up the street, Orange High School, for like 13 years. And then our church grew too much in that, and I didn't have time for it. But I got a phone call last Sunday as a young man, one of my former players. He went on to play at the Naval Academy, and he was deployed, and I think he's still deployed. But Orange is building a veterans wall at the high school at 1 o'clock. Um, it's going to be a two-hour service, and so none of you complain when I preach too long. Um, but I'm going to go down there because he called me and he said, uh, Hey, Coach, um, we're, we're supposed to uh, invite uh, anyone in our lives who... Uh, oh, great, I just FaceTimed my granddaughter. Um, <laughs> talk about distracting me from a sermon. Um, that was a legitimate butt dial, believe me, because it was right there. Uh, got to lose weight, got to do it quick. Um, but he called me last Sunday and said, uh, we're supposed to invite somebody uh, from our community here that ignited our passion to serve. And he picked me. So I'm pretty emotional about that. So I'm going to go up the street there. But we, it is, um, I hope, as we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're ignited to serve. Um, that's what we're called to do. So... I'm, we're starting a new series dealing with, you saw the video, Building in Broken Places. Here's the gospel in, in three seconds. I told you last week what's wrong with the world, that God had built us to serve God and serve others, but instead we serve ourselves and use God and others to get what we want, and that's what's wrong with the world. So you've got that last week. That's it. Um, the gospel is God made a great world. We broke it, and God's been rebuilding ever since. And, and God does some of God's best work in broken places. Remember Jesus Christ, the rebuilder uh, and the author and creator the, of the new creation, the new covenant, right? He came in. I'm getting a bad feedback up here, guys, but um, a bad ringing. But um, he built the world, and, and at the end of his life, what did he do? He, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, what? Broken for you. God builds in broken places, and you're never too broke to fix. That's the gospel. 
I think a little kid that came home from school had bought his mom something for Christmas at the little sale, and he ran home from school. He's carrying it off the bus, and, and he was like, Mommy, Mommy, and he fell down at the steps, and he heard crack, and he started to cry, and he said, Mommy, I bought you something at the Santa store, and it was for you, and I love you so much, and now it's ruined. She said, Honey, it's not ruined. Let's just open it and see what we can make out of the pieces. See, that's, that's what Jesus Christ does. That, that's the gospel. We broke it. God's continually working to fix it. And so I was looking at, this isn't a new message. This is something that I actually dealt with almost 20 years ago when I first came to Garfield. We were in the same mess that, that the church in America is in. See, this story is about Israel returning from exile. I, I don't have time to teach you on that. But, but the Babylonian exile was the most uh, dramatic, horrible thing that ever happened to Israel. Some scholars say it's amazing Judaism even survived it. In 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon attacked Judah. They destroyed Jerusalem. They tore the temple to the ground. They burned the city. They pillaged all of the sacred uh, material there and took the people into exile in a foreign land. Um, and now they're returning because Persia had come in under Cyrus and they overtook Babylon and they allowed the people to go back to Jerusalem. And they went back to rebuild in a broken place, right? And um, what began was a hundred year rebuilding project. See, when I was young, I thought, oh, they went back, Nehemiah built the walls, city was all fixed. No, that was the end of a hundred year building project out of exile. And, and 20 years ago, uh, I came into this church, and, and we were in exile. Let me tell you something. The American church, and we still are. The American church is in exile. I don't know if you know this. We, social scientists have now, you know, we, after COVID, we looked around and said, where did everybody go? Well, it only accelerated what's already been happening. There has been a mass exodus from faith in the American church. Well, not from faith. Let me change that. From church. Okay, this has been a mass exodus. You don't know this, but I've been studying long. Social scientists are telling us that we are in the midst right now of the, the largest religious shift in the history of our country. Right now, for the last 25 to 30 years, it began about the, the early 90s, and then it accelerated during COVID. I mean, just after 2020, it's just gone, you know, ballistic. But 40 million people in our country have become what social scientists over this 25 to 30 years de-churched. Now, what does that mean? What is social science? Again, they don't have a dog in the fight. They're just analysts. They say these are people who said that they were part of a church and attended regularly that now say that they attend less than once a year. Okay? And, and they shifted. Up until this time, the greatest religious shift in America was the 25 years after the Civil War. After the Civil War, for 25 years, the, the most devastating war in the history uh, of our country, still more casualties are in that war than any other war, and that was before the machine gun and the atomic bomb. When, when children of God fight each other, it's always the worst thing. And civil wars are horrible. Ask, ask uh, you know, Cain and Abel, right? And, and so after the Civil War, as people were returning and the devastation of that and mass immigration was coming, uh, when my descendants came to America post-Civil War, um, and, and there was this amazing shift in church attendance. People were rushing to churches. And that was the largest 
you know, shift what social scientists say in religious landscape in American history until the last 25 years. Do you know that in the last 25 to 30 years, depending on which social scientists, that we have exceeded that number post-Civil War by 125% in the other direction? 40 million people. That's more than both Great Awakenings and all the Billy Graham Crusades combined have de-churched, have moved away. And when you ask them the number one reason, do you know what they say? I moved. Now that could be geographically, or it could be I moved on to other things. They didn't leave mad, they, some did, that's 10% or 25% of that number, but most left, you know, just moved, moved on to other things. You know, and COVID just accelerated that. Now I found, oh, even I talked to a couple pastors that said it was hard for them to go back to church after COVID because they were like, man, all of a sudden Sundays, I said, oh, so this is what the world does on Sundays. They go hiking and went to brunches. It just moved, just shifted. And Israel, when they returned, right, in their first building, began to rebuild what they did. The first stage was they rebuilt the temple. See, Zerubbabel began the return. He rebuilt the temple. Ezra came in and re helped rebuild the community. And then Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Put, recalculating, putting God back in the center of our lives, right? Uh, getting a community all on board and then building the walls for unity and infrastructure to preserve it. But the first stage was rebuilding the temple. See, Israel had, had gotten off track. They, they believed that when they were chosen by God, that meant they were better than everybody else. How many of you know that the lie detector test said that is a lie, right? That unfortunately, we feel like if God blessed us or we do this, we align with the right place. Now we're the chosen people. Guess who the chosen people are? The entire human race. When God called Abraham and Sarah to reveal who God was to the world, he said, this little Iraqi farmer in the middle of, you know, a retirement community, he said, I'm going to bless you, but through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God has an all plan, right? All-inclusive plan. And, 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 and that was the calling, right? But they, they took their election as that they were better than others, okay? And, and a lot of us do that. Don't blame them. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 8, when God had brought them out of Egypt and all this, and he was giving them the land that they were going to inhabit, Deuteronomy 8 is great because God looks at the people and he said, I'm worried about you right now because you're going to go into the land that I gave you. And guess what you're going to do? You're going to build houses and you're going to live in them. And you're going to eat and your bellies are going to be full. And you're going to carve out gold and silver for economic commerce. And I worry about you when you do that. That you're going to forget the Lord your God. Who brought you out to bring you in. You're going to redirect yourselves into other things and forget that your focus needs to be on God. And so when Israel returned from exile, they had to reroute their lives. Any of you use GPS in your cars? Come on, it's okay. You can admit it. I can't find my way across the street without it. But if you get off the map on GPS, what does it do? Rerouting, rerouting, right? We reroute. Um, I read a story, and it's not funny. I feel terrible about it. Just a couple months ago, uh, there was a man in Hickory, North Carolina, who drove over a off of a bridge to his death 
that had been, you know, destroyed for over 10 years. You know why? He was following Google Maps. And the family has a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Google right now. Um, because he rerouted them over a bridge that had been out for 10 years. That's a terrible thing. I got, I'm not trying to make a statement on who should win that case or whatever. What I am saying is Israel found out I can't just trust the technology of this world. I can't just trust the desires of my own heart. I can't just do this by myself. I can't be my own savior and Lord and get to the place that I want to be because if I continue to do that, I'm going to reroute myself into exile. I'm going to end up somewhere where the bread of that world cannot sustain me. It can't heal me when I'm sick. It can't raise me when I'm dead. And I need to reroute my life. And that's what, that's what Israel's doing, right? They're rerouting themselves. They're, they're rebuilding the temple. They're putting God back at the center of everything. And there's a lot of teaching here about worship. What is worship, right? The, the good thing is worship is at the beginning, They said, we got to remember, you know, when they were delivered from Israel or from Egypt in slavery in Egypt, what's the first thing that people did? Read Exodus 15. Miriam, who would be like Leah, just got up on the mountain and grabbed her tambourine and they started praising God. They didn't run for the hills. They didn't, you know, go plant crops. They worship and worship was at the beginning, right? Let me tell you something. You know what my life changed is when I put worship as the beginning of my week. I don't know about you, but even in ministry, I, I caught myself doing this. I used to go to worship at the end of the week. Like my week started on Monday. You know, I did my 40 hours. I went and played on Saturday, and I went to worship and just vomited up the week, right? Just like, oh, God, let me, I hope I get a little inspiration because my week's going to begin again tomorrow. Do you know even our calendars don't do that? Have you ever looked at them? calendar doesn't start on Monday. It starts on Sunday. It starts on Sabbath. And when I started to begin my week in worship, when I started to let worship be the, the something that God is doing something new, and it can be the starting blocks for me to launch out into a new week. And if God is for me, it doesn't matter what's going to be against me that week that I can launch out in that kind of confidence. Even if I have a broken heart, I, I can take heart that God has heard me, that God knows my name, that the, my name is written in the palm of God's hand. I've worshiped with God's people that I have people that pray for me and think about me, and it's an example of, of a community of faith, that it, it just changed my life. So if you've ended your week here, stop it and restart it, recalibrate, use worship as the beginning, okay? And here's the other thing I've learned about worship. Worship is all-inclusive. That's the beautiful thing about a diverse church like Garfield, because I don't know how they're going to worship in heaven, I know they're going to worship night and day, but I don't know if they're going to play Mozart or Beyonce. I just don't know. I don't know if they're going to sing hymns or gospel or, or if they're going to do hip hop or country western. I don't know. <laughs> but you know what? Worshiping at Garfield Methodist Church for the last 20 years, I've gotten all of that and then some. So when I get there, I'm going to be prepared. Because I don't care if they're sitting in silence or they're dancing like coconuts. I just want to (laughs) go. And worship is all inclusive. And I hate how churches have factioned themselves around different forms of worship. Well, this is the proper way and that's the proper way. Did you read this scripture? When they rebuilt the temple, people were celebrating with joy and weeping with tears. And that's worship. 
I'm so tired of, of people like, you know, ranking where they are in the hierarchy. That was the problem that they had in Corinth, which is Paul said, I don't care if you speak in the tongues of angels. I don't care if you have a PhD and they call you doctor. I don't care if you've given your body to be burned. I don't care if you give all your money to the mission trip cause of the day. If you don't have a love for me and others, it's just noise. Quit ranking yourself. And I'm going to tell you, if people come in here today, if you came in today, I, I was at a big uh, assembly not long ago um, that I was speaking at, and I don't know why the spirit went on to me. I said, hello, saints. And everybody said, and then I said, hello, sinners. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, out of about 400 people, there were three brave folk that said, hello. <laughs> and I said, great, we're all here. Isn't that good? Some are weeping, some have joy. I got to tell you, man, if you're in here today, if you're online and your part of worship is God, where are you? Lord, I'm struggling. I don't understand what you're doing. Do you know that is every bit a, a proclamation of faith as is God is good all the time? They're the same thing because we're here present, authentically presenting ourselves before God. I served my very first church was in the Lorraine County. It was the oldest historical black church in Lorraine County. It was founded uh, back just after the Civil War. And they had dwindled down to about 30 people. And they got me. And uh, we, yeah, I know somebody said, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I think it was my wife. Um, but, but they, and we had this incredible revival breakout. And we went from 30 people in worship to 405 years. And you would be shocked to know that it became very diverse. Um, we maintained black church propensities, historical black church propensities. But 35% of our folks were not African-American. And we had folk from all over the gambit. And you know one of my favorite worship services was? Our gospel choir was singing. And our, our lead uh, singer, our soloist, was named Candy. She could sing the stars down from heaven. And Candy was so sweet. Everybody loved Candy. Everybody knew Candy. And they also knew Candy was an epileptic. She, had, she was fit to epileptic seizures. And one Sunday morning, Candy is up there and she is singing. You know, she's getting us all moved in the spirit and everything. And all of a sudden, Candy went, boop. All of my Pentecostals began to praise God. I mean, run around. Oh, my God. This is, you know, they're, they're, they're cheering. My white Lutherans are running for the phone to call 911. <laughs> They were, and, and none of us knew what to do. And, you know, people are praising and others are scared to death. And I go down and checking on candy, holding her hand. And I looked at her husband, he's with the Pentecostals and I'm going, what is going on? <laughs> you know, so we prayed and all this. And, they, you know, thankfully I knew 911 was called and we just talked about this. And the, the, uh, the EMT guys came in, you know, with the stretcher and my Southern Baptist African-American pianist had to give them marching music. It was. And they came in, they got Candy on the gurney, and they were taking her out, and Candy came too. And she's, now they're playing the marching music for these guys out. The look on their face was like, what have I walked into? And all of a sudden, Candy started praising God under the straps, and out she goes, and, and we just worshiped. I went down to the hospital after service. I said, Candy, you know, I love you. Uh, were you slain in the spirit, or did you have a seizure? She said, Pastor, I honestly don't know. <laughs> But that's all-inclusive worship. 
Don't you dare look at somebody who worships in deep silence and said, oh, they don't know the Holy Spirit. And don't you dare look at me who I tend to dance out of my shoes and say, well, he must be a little, you know, intellectually incomplete. Don't judge each other. You know what the psalm says? That everything that has breath, praise the Lord. It doesn't matter if you worship in silence. It doesn't matter if you run down the the aisles. It doesn't matter if you're very reflective prayerfully. Uh, Just give who you are to God and don't worry about how your brother and sister presents themselves before God. Hannah went into the temple and began to worship. As a woman, she had been abused by her husband and she was worshiping in such a way that the priest thought she was drunk and went over to her and she said, sir, I'm not drunk. I'm just pouring my heart out to God read first Samuel it doesn't matter how you do it just open your heart to God everything that has breath that's a whole lot of stuff have you ever heard the animal kingdom give praise to God doesn't sound the same right and that's who we are and so Joel says rend your heart and not your garments people thought their garments Or how they worship God. God said, Joel said, God's not impressed by that. He wants you to open your heart. Okay. So God moves, we respond. I'm going to try to go through this quickly. But the Browns don't play to one. And there's a lot of soup out there for you to buy. Two pots of mine. It better be gone or I'm locking the doors. Okay. (laughs) Soup sales for mission trip. I just screwed up all my integrity. Okay. Worship, four parts to worship. Walter Brueggemann's a great uh, Old Testament scholar. And he said there's four pieces to worship. First, it's remembering. It's not in order, but all these components should be there. There's remembering. There's praise. There's confession and lament. American church doesn't do that very well. And then there's thanksgiving. Okay? So look at these real quick. First, worship is remembering. We had communion last week. You come and we say, Jesus took body and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this what? In remembrance. We're calling back into our understanding and mind what God has done. The Israel, the Jewish community does this to this day in being obedient to remembering, right? Exodus says, when your children ask, what is this all about? Tell them about what God did for us. And when God did it, the people bowed down and worshiped. To this day, the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, when youth and children are bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, they come forward and they read this. When your children ask you in time to come, what's the meaning of all this? Tell them we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. Remember. I am, my history is, I just confession, um, I'm Pennsylvania Dutch. That's my cultural background. We were the Germans that migrated to America and slipped over the border of Pennsylvania into eastern Ohio. I'm from Youngstown, and Baptists and Methodists evangelized us, and I'm so glad they did. And I come up out of that route. Now, my GPS is on God. He's my North Star. Jesus is my Savior. But I'm still stuck with some cultural baggage. And one of my cultural baggage from being Pennsylvania dust is there's these stupid little superstitions that we just can't get rid of. Like if you come to my house and open an umbrella in the house, I'm going to start to sweat. If one of my mirrors is broken and I don't run to Lowe's and replace it like that hour, I won't be able to sleep. 
Isn't that stupid? These are little uh, superstitions. And one of them also is, you know, my two most important things that I wear is my cross and my wedding ring. But in necklaces, if, if the clasp gets turned around this way, is bad luck. And so I was telling people in Heritage this morning, when they come through the line and their necklace is backwards, I'm either going to physically fix it or I'm fixing it in my mind, right? This morning, we were, my wife was driving because I'm always last minute looking at my notes. And I noticed my clasp was all the way around. It was stuck to my cross. And I'm like, gosh, I couldn't get out. I, I can't go preach. This is bad luck. I can't go. I can't have my class forward. I'm preaching. This is like terrible. And I'm, I'm like fighting in the car. And then I remembered we had our granddaughter this weekend for a lot of the weekend. And she loves me to hold her. And every time I hold her, she reaches for this thing. And I have to now put it away from her because she's getting pretty strong. And she might just rip this thing off. And I just kind of barked out to her. I said, Corinne did this. She was messing with my cross. And she got all messed up. And finally, then I fixed it. And I tell you, I had this moment from the Holy Spirit saying, You're, isn't it beautiful? Your granddaughter is grabbing for your cross. Oh, you know, I was in Ireland and, and years ago, I was doing a revival there and a teenager came in and she said, I want to buy a cross to the jeweler. And I thought, oh God, God is moving with young people. She said, can I get one with the wee little man on it? Your granddaughter's grabbing at your cross. You know what she's grabbing at right now? Because it's a shiny object. But when your children ask, why you wear that cross? Because we were slaves to sin and death. But thank God for Jesus who led us out of slavery with a mighty hand. That's what we're supposed to do in worship. We're to remember. And worship is praise, okay? Now, this is very misunderstood. Scholars, Walter Brueggemann, a great scholar, said that praise is world construction. You ever think of that? It's world. We are protesting the suffering of the world. And we are praising God for a whole new world. And we're advanced, in advance, living in it. We're, we're, we're citizens of the new world. That's why Paul calls us a colony of heaven. But we are, you know, we're, we're living with a new world mindset in the old one. And by praising God, we're calling something new into reality. Two dramatic examples for me were during the civil rights movement. These were kids. These were 12-year-olds and 16-year-olds. And they were facing fire hoses. And they were being beaten on their heads and cracked skulls. And they had German shepherds coming around them. But they were singing, I see freedom in the air. And they worshiped for two hours in churches before they ever marched. And a more dramatic example of that, there are historical records from non-religious people Christians that when the Christians were being killed in the Roman Colosseum, that as lions were bearing down on them, whole families were holding hands and singing hymns, praising God. So you don't think of praise that way, do you? When we praise God, we're building an alternative world where the powers of this world have no ultimate power. We're praising God for a whole new world. You know, that's what Psalm 117 is. I've just been meditating on this psalm for some reason. Do you know this, is a, uh, this psalm is, I, I think, 17 words, two verses. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible. But it's a universal call to worship. And just says what? Praise the Lord, all nations, exalt him, all peoples. For his steadfast love has overcome us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Do you know what that word is? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And it's imperative. It's saying you 
Praise the Lord. Hallel, praise Yah, Yahweh, praise God. Uh, you know, I love my family. I love my marriage. I love my granddaughter. But my hallelujah belongs to God. I don't praise my family. I love my family. It, we, Dre and Leah sing a song, my hallelujah belongs to you. It belongs to God. Don't praise your bank account. Don't praise your political party. Don't praise your, your career. Don't praise even the good things in your life. Reserve this kind of praise for God, who is the architect of a new creation. And then worship as confession and lament, right? We need to confess. In, in confession and lament, they say in the Hebrew, was three components. One, it was guilt and shame. We had strayed from the covenant. We had, you know, we strayed from our relationship. And I need to repent. You know what repent literally means? Turn. I need to recalculate. I need to turn back to God. So I'm confessing my guilt and shame. Psychologists did a study, and they said that people that confess some of their stuff are worse off than people that don't confess anything. I come clean. Right? There was a famous preacher who wrote books about the power of positive thinking. And he asked George Buttrick, who was one of the great New York pastors, he goes, I just don't know why people feel so guilty. And George Buttrick said, maybe they feel guilty because they are guilty. Right? I confess my guilt and shame. The second component is I confess my helplessness. I see 4,000 innocent children dead in Gaza in three weeks. And I feel helpless. I see mass shootings where father and son go to bull and are shot and killed and in the midst of just doing something and I feel helpless. But when I go to worship, I'm saying, God, this breaks my heart because it breaks yours and I'm helpless. But thank God Almighty, you are not. You build in broken places. You fight injustice. You fix broken things. You make crooked ways straight. You bring the high places down. You're, that's my God. But I, I'm confessing, I'm lamenting the pain as though it were mine. We feel, we feel guilt, we feel failure, we feel helpless. And the last part of confession is rage. We rage against these things, innocent suffering. Dylan Thomas, remember? Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I'm so proud of myself for pulling that wild out. Pastor, I am. I'm going to tell you why. Pastor Terry is an English major. She knows everything. And I said to her this morning, I said, you know, Dylan Thomas said, raise, raise. She said, I'm not sure. I went, first time in 20 years I knew something she didn't. Felt so good. Rage against pride, too. Rage against pride. But we're raging against these things. And the final one is the most, probably the most important. They worship in Thanksgiving. We're in that time of year, right? You give thanks. Give thanks to God. Terry talked about our Christmas offering. I'm going to challenge you this year. This is probably the most important year in my 20 years because we're in the midst of this exile that's happening in America. And I'm going to challenge you this, the way I challenged a brother one time. We give of our resources, time, treasure, talent. We give in response to how good God's been to us. I think we forget that. I mean, I know it's Veterans Day and all that, and I love it. Uh, but every time we sing God Bless America, I think it's very moving. But when are we ever going to say America Bless God? We're the most privileged country in the history of the world. And we keep saying, God, give us more, give us more, give us more. When do we return and return and return? And I think our Veterans Day is remembering the gift of serving, right? 
You know, we don't even talk about sacrifice anymore except on a baseball field, right? How do we do this? So I had, a, I had an individual once, I was a district superintendent. If you don't know what that is, praise God. I'm almost over my PTSD after 20 years. But I had to oversee 80 churches. It's like having 80 kids. I mean, it was, it, was, it was kind of weird. And then, you know, collectively over others. And, and we had a district where uh, I went to, it was in mid-Ohio. We had a Korean church. I loved them, about 30 folks. They drove from different places. But other than that, of the 18,000 Methodists that filled our churches, my wife was the first person of color. I'm like, what's wrong with this picture? Like, what's going on? So we decided to do outreach to all people, not just some people. And we planted a new church there. It was called All God's Children. It was in the city of Mansfield. There were about 200 people that showed up at launch. There were uh, like African-American, Caucasian, Hispanic, biracial. It was beautiful. It was a kingdom. You know what the average age of that church was? 22. And we needed funding for it, right? So our denomination said, look, if you guys can raise 150000 in the district, we'll match it. So you'll have 300000 which is about what it takes to launch a church for three years. And uh, so we, we set about doing it. There was this individual that was part of the strategy team with me, and, and he claimed I brought him to Jesus. He said, you brought me to Jesus. He used to say it like scolding me. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. Um, but it, we became dear friends. And he was a fairly wealthy person for that part of the world. He was an ophthalmologist, so he wasn't a multimillionaire. He owned property in Shelby, Ohio. You don't get filthy. This isn't Manhattan in Shelby, Ohio. You don't get filthy rich. But he was wealthy. He, he had some means. And he said, Chip, this has burdened me. I want to give something to this project, but I don't know what to give. We were at a meeting, and I said, just give a gift that represents how good God's been to you in your life. He said, ouch. <laughs> and, he, and he left the meeting. He didn't say anything to me. I was like, oh. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't call me for a few days. And I said, I wonder if I really ticked him off. Um, and then about fourth day, he called me. He said, can we go get coffee? I said, yeah. We went and got coffee. He said, you know, since you told me, give a gift that represents how God's, good God's been in your life. He said, I haven't been able to sleep very well. He said, one night I just couldn't sleep. I got down, I went down to the paper, you know, my kitchen. I got out a legal pad and I started writing all the ways God's been good to me and, and some of the things I wish God would have helped me with. And he said, the left side of the ledger went on for three pages. The right side went on for about five lines. Thanking God for my marriage and my kids are happily married. My grandkids are healthy. And he said, on, on, on. He said, I don't ever want to do that again. And he handed me an envelope. He said, I don't want to talk about this. But this is the answer to what you asked me to do. And we left and we prayed. We left. I went in the car. I opened the envelope. And it was a check for $150,000. He funded the whole project. Uh, and this isn't prosperity preaching, okay? I'm not saying, oh, give a gift and God's going to give you a Mercedes. That is not biblical. Anyway, we give our time, our service, our resources. We give in response to when your children ask. We were slaves, but in Jesus Christ, God gave me the sweetest deal that could ever come. And I confess that, and I lament over a world that's broken, and I remember that, and I give praise God for that, for the new world, and I give thanks by giving God who I am. I'm past my time, but this story's too good. I, 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 I didn't share it at Heritage, but I'm going to share it with you because... I don't care if you're late because the Browns don't play to one. Um, no, okay. There's a guy named Charles Plum. He's a U.S. Navy jet pilot. 
he flew over 89 missions into, uh, into Vietnam. He was a very well-known pilot. And his, um, his plane was shot down, and like John McCain, he spent many years in a uh, Vietnamese prison. I think in the same one that McCain was tortured in. Um, he flew off of the uh, aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. He's now a motivational speaker. He's way in his up in years. And he just shared, like a year ago, I saw something on a blog, that he was in a restaurant after doing a speaking engagement, and a, and a person came up to him, you know, a little younger than him, not much, an elderly person, and said, uh, you're, you're Charlie Plum, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, I was, I was on the Kitty Hawk with you. He said, you were? He said, what, what did you do? He said, I packed your parachute. He was a parachute packer. And, uh, and then he said to him, he said, I guess it worked. <laughs> and Charlie Plum looked at him and said, yeah, if it didn't work, I wouldn't be here. And they hugged and shook hands and he left. And Charlie Plum said, I was left to say, you know, I probably walked by this guy all the time. And back then it was so meticulous how they had to pack those parachutes. It took them hours. And he said, somebody was behind the scenes taking the time to pack my parachute. How many times am I oblivious to that? Let me ask you, friends, how many times are you oblivious to the fact that the God of the universe meticulously packed your parachute, spent the time to give all of us an escape clause, to rescue us from ourselves? And so how do we rebuild in a world that's broken or a life that's broken or a church that's broken? We recalculate and we remember the author and the finisher of our faith. And he has a name and the name is Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Help us to rebuild your temple. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.